How do we move past an eye for an eye in a way that benefits and honors communities and victims? And what role do physical spaces have to play in better justice solutions? I'm Teresa Maddich, and this is Matters. Matters is a podcast presented by Clio, the world's leading cloud-based legal technology provider, where we look at small changes that can make a big impact on lawyers' daily lives and practices. Today's episode is the second in our two-part series on criminal justice reform and why it matters. I interviewed Deanna Van Buren, the Design Director and Executive Director of Designing Justice and Designing Spaces, an architecture and real estate development firm that is building the infrastructure to end mass incarceration. A pioneering activist, Deanna has been recognized internationally for her leadership in using architecture, design, and real estate innovations to address the social inequities behind the mass incarceration crisis. Her 2017 TED Woman Talk on what a world without prisons could look like has been viewed more than one million times. And she is the only architect to have been awarded the Rauschenberg Artist as Activist Fellowship. When we spoke, Deanna introduced us to the concept of restorative justice and explained why it achieves better outcomes than imprisonment, and how she uses her skills as an architect to create real change in communities. She also discussed how important lawyers are in furthering the aims of restorative justice, and why she believes legal professionals have incredible power and an incredible opportunity to change our justice system. My name is Deanna Van Buren. I'm the design director and executive director of Designing Justice, Designing Spaces. Uh, We're an architecture and real estate development firm that is building the infrastructure to end mass incarceration. And what inspired that vision of yours to end mass incarceration? And I've also heard you say you dream of a world without prisons, potentially even. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think the original inspiration came from spending a hot, sweaty, day in church on Martin Luther King Jr.'s birthday in West Oakland at the Taylor Memorial Methodist Church. I remember the name. And I heard activists Angela Davis and Fania Davis speak about restorative justice. And, you know, since a young person, I had been taught that that justice was something that was not for us. You know, and that had been my lived experience. Um, and so to hear about restorative justice, that it was a thing, Right? That was based in an entirely different set of values and systems became, uh, for me, the thing. I, and it's who knows you know, why that resonated so deeply, but it felt real like a solution. And I committed myself at that point to designing for it. Right, absolutely. And for those who weren't able to join us for your talk this morning, what is restorative justice? Yeah, restorative justice is a philosophy that says when a crime has been committed, it is a breach of relationship or a harm, and that the needs of the victim have to be addressed as the primary step to take, and that those who have committed the offense are obligated to make amends. They're accountable for those actions. And so it looks like peacemaking circles, family group conferences, truth and reconciliation courts, you know, processes where they both come together to address the offense rather than lawyers, no lawyers, no judges. <laughs> None of those things are involved. Yeah, absolutely. And that's really interesting that, that you say about making amends because there's maybe this concept what 
um, one of our other speakers talked about this morning of locking up and throwing away the key, but a lot of the people that you've met actually really want to make amends mm -hmm. for what they've done. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that what we're finding is that restorative justice actually works best in cases of severe violence and that survivors of violence prefer restorative justice to incarceration because they actually feel safer. They're like, they know these folks are coming back to their community. There are also um, issues of retribution, right? Oh, you sent my brother to jail or prison and now I'm going to get you. So there's just, it's actually a safer, everyone's like, oh, you know, incarceration makes us safe. Incarceration doesn't make us safe. Restorative yeah. justice repair makes us safe. And they know that. And, you know, they want a chance to be seen and heard. And the, our current justice system doesn't allow for that. Yeah, it's amazing the power of creating these spaces and just giving people a space to talk it out and sure. know that they're on the same page. Yeah, yeah. Um, so a key part of your process is working with people and teaching them design and working with designers who are incarcerated themselves. Why is that so important to your process? So architecture as a discipline has been kept out of our hands since the dawn of time, right? We have no agency around our built environment. Yes, we breathe in it. We live in it, we love in it, we work in it, we sleep in it, and we have no agency. So it's very important that people reclaim that part of their lives. And so we work with people really deeply around design to teach them the tools that I know so they can have agency in their built environment and use it as a tool to support their emotional and physical health and wellness. It's very important that we reclaim it and we democratize design. And so that is part of why we do what we do. And are there any stories that stick with you from that work? I know you told a really inspiring one this morning. Oh, my God. There's so many, so many stories. You know, seeing um, people engage in it, particularly when I did a, a workshop for both the mobile refuge rooms with, like, you know, I think there were maybe 40 students there. And I did a similar workshop with uh, a nonprofit delivering services around the bus. And both we did full-scale mock-ups, right? So these are... These aren't little models. Like, we did full-size models of these things. And I always think, I'm like, okay, guys, like, here's a knife. Here's some glue guns. Here's how you do it. And then, like, they just run off, and they go crazy. Like, they're, like, ripping it, and they, like, sticking knives and things, and, like, ripping up uh, cloth and building stuff. Like, I don't even have to do anything. Like, I just need to get out of the way. It's like some feeding frenzy of creativity that... Um, <laughs> it's always a surprise. It shows you how, it, how um, desperate people are for some creative practice in their lives, especially when it's for their own thing, you know, for their own project. Yeah, and you, you talked about the importance of um, control in traumatized environments, and there's trauma yes. on both sides of the equation. Always, always, yeah. And so control of your environment both at like a sort of systemic level, like I'm going to go to the planning committee and the planning commission and advocate. I don't want that sewage treatment plant in my, in my neighborhood. That's one way to have control. And then at the scale of a room, I need to be able to leave the room easily. I need to be able to slide my chair, which is I like things on casters, to get away from you. I need to be able to open a window and make myself feel cooler. I need to be able to turn a light on, you know, like these are really simple things that they find that when people have control over their environment, they have much less stress, much less stress. Absolutely, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Um, what's been your most unexpected learning from working with either um, people who are incarcerated or the communities that you work with to try to bring more restorative justice? I mean, two of the things I mentioned today have been most surprising to me. A, the fact that people process trauma this way, like that was a shocker. 
You know, I, I never, when people started crying in my design studios, which happens all the time, I, I, they started doing that. I was like, um, what do I do now? <laughs> What's happening here? And I was seeing what I was understanding is that the process of imagining things, space, helps people to process that. So that was a, a, a big surprise. And then the other big surprise was how hard it is for people to get past the things that they know and the way that that process helps them do that and how long it takes. Right? Like I spent a whole week of working with incarcerated men at San Quentin and you know they kept trying to redesign a prison. Like, no, that's not what we're talking about. And it took them a while before they started to break open and then to watch them sort of break out of this thinking about what this is, is magical. They're like, oh, it could be this. I'm like, now you got it. Now you're going. So there's even like a relearning that needs to happen before you can take that control. Yeah, yeah. You really, you know, I tell you like this whole time, I people have always been like, oh, so you're designing better prisons? I'm like, no, I'm saying we don't do them. Like, it, they... They're like, that doesn't compute in my mind. Like, they can't get... It's amazing. Like, I will even say it, and they'll still repeat. Like, so it's the better version. Like, no, we don't do them. <laughs> so, so that's just how... It shows you how conditioned we are, and then how creativity helps us break out of that conditioning. That's a really important of design thinking, is, like, framing the problem and what lens you look at it through. Mm-hmm. Um, how, how has design theory reduced recidivism, whether through your efforts or through other efforts that you've seen? Yeah. People love this question. Like, how is your work reducing recidivism? Recidivism like, is a super complicated, multifaceted thing to analyze and code. And space and environment, um, in terms of the actual analytics and data around that, doesn't really exist. What, what we know, though, is that if people don't have anywhere to live, right? This is just a basic physical situation. If people don't have any way to get to their probation officer, if they don't have any way to get to a job, if there's nowhere they can have jobs. And so it's this place, the place, the policies, the programs, and the infrastructure that we build is going to be able to facilitate people not going back to prison, right? So Restore Oakland's restaurant, it's right on public transportation. It's training people to do things. It's a place and program-based approach that's going to help with that. How many numbers? Who, who knows? But if people aren't homeless, they're also not going to go back, right? So you build homes for them. You make places where they can succeed in their program. Like if I'm in transitional housing, my chances of recidivism are probably pretty high, right? The six-month thing that Shaka talked about. Our hope is that the projects we've created, these rooms for them that are comforting and provide privacy and help them, you know, psychologically will help them complete their programs and not recidivate, right? And that the environment, detoxifying the environment is going to help with that. Okay. And similarly to how we talked about um, how you see people like crying and processing trauma in this way and this amazing impact that it has, even at like when you get people thinking about difference. Yeah. And you can build anything yet. <laughs> yeah. How does it feel when you see like the Peacemaking Center or the Center for Restorative Justice in Oakland in action and you see people using those spaces and getting something they've never had before. How is that for you? Yeah, that's a great question. No one's ever asked me that question. <laughs> I wish they would. <laughs> it's like, it makes me, that's when I start crying, right? Like, that's when I get super emotional. It's like, it is the most powerful moment for an architect 
I don't care what kind of architect you are, is to walk into something that was in your head and then it's there in real space and time and you're in it and you're watching people interact with it and they love it and they're enjoying it. It's like the greatest reward. It's the great. It's very emotional. And I will literally sit there for hours just watching the people enjoy the space. I could do it all day long. <laughs> That's so cool. Is there any story of anyone who used one of these centers for the first time that really sticks with you? Yeah, you know, there's a story that I, I it's happened with a few people where, um, let's take the vehicle, right? It's just a bus, right? It's a bus. It's a classroom. It's beautiful space for learning. And this has happened to many students. Like, they'll come, they'll look on the bus, they'll poke their head in, and like, oh. And then they'll leave, right? They just they go back out again. And then they come back, you know, just to watch them kind of come back. Like, can I come in here? They're like, yeah, you can come in here. And they come in, and they sit down in the back, in the lounge, and they are, um, they don't leave. You know, they don't leave. That's yeah. amazing. Can you tell our listeners a bit about the pop-up villages and how they work? Yeah, so the Pop-Up Village has been um, a long, complex project that, that turns out it works. Like, that's the, the crazy thing about it, is that it's providing a place for people to come together and be with each other, right? To build social capital and not just social wealth. And so, you know, it's been um, an adventure as an architect to now also have an operations team. I had to hire a community liaison we did the full, we did the whole thing, right? So the, all the assets, all the architecture, all the people who set it up, break it down. Um, and we were working with a formerly incarcerated man, um, Tyrone Mullins, who started his own firm, and he's becoming our operations lead. So, you know, he kind of pours his heart and soul into setting it up. You know, we're there with our folks. We have um, an MC who might use my community liaison, and she sort of, we program it. So all, the whole time there's like things going, there's like food demos, and there's dance performances, and there's DJs, and all of it is supported by our infrastructure. And people get pissed off if the thing doesn't come every, every month. They're like, well, what, where is it? <laughs> I was like, well, come next month, I promise. But yeah. That's amazing how people get used to it that quickly. They get though, used once. to it. It does take a little time, but and now we're starting to work with bigger institutions like uh, UCSF, which is um, our, our local university and, and, and medical place to create a pregnancy village. So it's going to be for pregnant women. We are working with Bridge Housing, which is one of the country's largest um, uh, nonprofit housing developers, so that we pop up at, at um, in their housing project to bring people from mixed incomes together. So, like, how do we create environments where we have folks who are low income and who are making a ton of money? Like, how do you break that barrier too? So, uh, it's an incredible tool that seems to be um, expanding. That's great. Wonderful to hear. So, we are at a conference for lawyers. So, mm -hmm. I have to ask. How can lawyers play a role in making restorative justice more widespread and broadspread? Is there a role for them to play? A huge role. Yeah. I mean, half of the restorative justice practitioners I work with used to be lawyers, or they are still lawyers. Lawyers have incredible power to change the way we do justice. I mean, I can't think of anyone who has more power to do that than them. Uh, many of our community organizing partners are movement lawyers. Right, they're driving, I, I'm actually in service to lawyers a lot of the time who are really trying to push the agenda and we're using space with them to help them do that, right? So if lawyers can fight, you know, they can sue the city. Like, you can't build that jail because you didn't follow your own process. You didn't engage people in imagining it. 
and you can slow it down, you can shut them down, and you can get restorative justice implemented into your cities with working with the DA's office, prosecutors. They're the ones who have to bring it. You're like, yes, so I do want restorative justice. Yes, I do want another tool as a prosecutor so I don't just have to send people to jail or ju judges I know. There are a bunch of judges I know who are also like, yeah, I want more tools. And restorative justice is a powerful tool so they don't have to keep sending people back. That's so cool. And... I mean, how can lawyers use sort of the principles and design thinking concepts that you use as an architect? Um, you use them to design spaces, but they can use them to design better whole experience for the clients that they're they working with. Yeah. So I've done some workshops with lawyers around collaborative law practice, which is a sort of form of divorce and family law. And we did a great process with them. It was an all-day workshop with them where we helped them think through the client experience. We drew the client experience. You know, we had sort of cards and tools to help them understand what their values were. Like, you know, when your client comes, they want to know what you care about. And you need to show that in the environment. So there are a lot of things that we learned. Um, and I wrote an article called Peace in Place with a lawyer and a psychologist that was in the Collaborative Law Review. It's on our website where we wrote out, you know, this sort of intersectionality of that and what they can do to help uh, improve the, the experience of, of folks coming into their uh, That's processes. That's really interesting, because the whole client, you talked about the client experience, and that's often so much bigger than even like the small part that a lawyer might engage with somebody yeah, as yeah, part yeah. of their yeah. journey with justice. That's right. You know, hospitality is part of that, right? Yeah. Welcoming them. How do you do that? What Do you have your degrees on the wall? Take them down. Right? You know, there's a lot of like simple things that can be done so you don't intimidate people. Now, some people do want to see the degrees because that's how they know they're going to pay you the high hourly wage, but you have to locate it well. You know, but you want people to feel comfortable. You know, you want people to feel at home. Yeah. You know, and welcome. Do you, uh, do you get a lot of resistance to the lawyers you work with? Or I guess they're volunteering to sign up for your... Yeah, I mean, some, some I do. But most of the time, if you're encountering me, you probably already agree with me. Or, you know, you're uh, open to the idea of it. You know, most of the lawyers I work with are pretty uh, activist in their orientation. Um, and then with the collaborative law practitioners, they're already kind of doing something a little differently anyway. So it, was, it wasn't hard to get. I mean, our class was full, you know, but it's new for them. Very cool. Um, what advice do you have for a lawyer who might be listening to this and thinking, oh, I want to do that. I want to look at the client experience and see if I can make things better for my community and my clients. I mean, you could certainly use the tools that we have. My website has lots of them. Um, we have the toolkit itself. We have all, our, you know, all of these resources on the website that they can just look at to, to use. They can read the article. I mean, all it's really simple and helpful to do. I mean, I would also, you know, I met with some lawyers and a judge the other day in New York and went to visit their spaces that they're using. They're actually now bringing restorative justice to all of New York City's workers. Like, it's a big initiative. And I met with him, and he just decided, you know, I'm going to start doing this in my practice. Like, I'm going to start using restorative justice and mediation in what I do. And so it's pretty easy to get training in it and then try to implement it in small ways and maybe even designate space in your, um, the environment that you're in for just that kind of thing, right? And so you sort of set in a small way. You don't have to do it all the time, but lawyers are really well poised to get trained to do it and then begin to implement it in their space in some way. Excellent. And try stuff out. I'm always about try small, 
iterate quickly. That's a design principle, right? Try small things. Get feedback from your from your clients. Like, what did you think? I'm I'm doing this. Do you like that? And be honest. You know, be honest. But a survey. So just be checking in with them, and then keep repeating and trying new things all the time. And trust yourself, right? Intuitively trust yourself. You know what spaces make you feel good, right? You know, you do it in your home. You know, yeah. Just try things. Yeah, it doesn't have to be scary, it sounds No, like. it doesn't at all. It doesn't at all. Like, I mean, simple stuff I talked about today, like nature in, this, in the environment. When you mm-hmm. go to choose an office, think about the experience of someone parking their car and coming into your, to your place. Is it confusing? Is it disorienting? Like, do I know where I am? Um, do you have a view to a brick wall or do you have a view to something that will help people be able to modulate their nervous system? If not, let's get some plants in the space. Let's get some art that represents that. Like there's different strategies that make it pretty, pretty easy. It's not hard. You can go, anyone can buy plants, you know? Yeah. That's <laughs> and that's really... just one of many things that you can think about, you know, as people come in. Well, that's really powerful advice and something that's definitely accessible for it's many lawyers. It's all very accessible. Especially, I mean, lawyers don't get paid nothing. I mean, some don't. <laughs> but they have the money to be able to invest in it. And I'm like, if you all don't do it, who, who's going to do it? You know, so try. When you meet people who are maybe not on board with your vision of restorative justice or a world without prisons and they think, no, I think I'll feel safest if people are in in prison they don't really believe in this more community collaborative approach what do you say to convince them otherwise you know I usually just tell them the facts Mm. you know I just state the data usually that but after I ask them why do you think that like why do you think that this is a good approach and often what you hear is like well they did something wrong or I did something wrong or they should be punished and I'm like well why why is that and what does punishment really look like? Don't they have a sort of obligation to repair what they've done? Wouldn't it be the the person who'd been harmed who should really say that? I mean, if you were harmed, what would you want? You know, and it's just a conversation that gets us to a, a different place. I'm like, because actually, people prefer this. You know, actually, when people do restorative justice, they don't violently reoffend. If you go to prison not the case so which you know those are just the facts you know that's what is happening so it usually is helpful and I often I get pushback most from communities of color who low-income communities of color who are like you know they've got some scary people in 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 their lives that they are like I don't want that person around I get that yeah talking to them about about that but it sounds like you use the same principles of this peacemaking, like ask them why, create like a safe space for a conversation. Exactly. To, yeah. It's much better that way because I totally get it. Like I totally get like this is a, a massive cultural and paradigm shift we're talking about. It's a huge thing. You know, we've had it this way since the beginning, yeah. you know, punishment, retribution, you know, eye for an eye, you know, these are really clear values about how justice gets dealt, but it's not working. No, but I think the vision that you have is really inspiring, and Thank I you. think hopefully we will get there yeah, one day. Yeah, we will. I, I'm absolutely convinced we will. Absolutely convinced. Thank you for listening to Matters. For more episodes, visit our homepage at cleo.com podcast. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or Spotify so you never miss an episode. Matters is produced by Andrew Booth, 
Sam Rosenthal, Teresa Matic, and Derek Bolin, and by Clio, the world's leading cloud-based legal technology provider. If you'd like to learn more about Clio, please visit us at clio.com.